Who are the unstoppable ones? Is it just that they can do it and I can't? Who are the unstoppable ones? Is it just that they can do it and I can't? Who are the unstoppable ones? Is it just that they can do it and I can't? Mission unstoppable. Mission unstoppable. The unstoppable ones. You did say unstoppable, right? You did say unstoppable, right? What is it they know that I don't? Coach Frankie Picasso takes you on the mission unstoppable. Anyone stop these people? Good evening and welcome to Mission Unstoppable. I am your host, the Unstoppable Frankie Picasso, and tonight we are going on another Mission Unstoppable. Our guest and guide this evening will take us into a new world of emotion. Now, most of us have experienced the gamut of human emotions at one time or another, everything from anger to hate, happiness to bliss, hate to love, and the big green monster, jealousy, guilt, But what happens when we bury our emotions, or maybe even worse, allow one to consume us with negative passion? Well, my guest this evening is known as the Emotional Pro, and we will be discussing how to face your emotions, so stay tuned and stay close. Again, it's the Unstoppable Frankie Picasso, and you're listening to Mission Unstoppable Radio Live on Tuesday, November the 16th. And this is the live version of the show, so feel free to call in. The chat room is now open as well. The time in Toronto is 8 p.m., 7 in Chicago, and 5 in Los Angeles. The show will also run Thursday on TogiNet Radio at 8 p.m. Eastern. So if you miss it or want to tell folks about it, you can uh, let them know to catch it there. My guest this evening is Eileen Dillon. She is a master social worker. She is a psychotherapist, international speaker, radio host, author, and leading expert in feeling human. Again, known as the Emotional Pro and Foundation for Life expert, Eileen has spent over 40 years as a California licensed, privately practicing marriage and family therapist and clinical social worker. She holds two California professional psychotherapy licenses. Her work has brought her up close and personal with a wide range of human issues, and her goal is to awaken the world to the power and importance of human emotions. She's the author of 19 books, including such titles as 99 Tips for Mastering Fear, Exploring Anger with Your Child, Bouncing Back from Jealousy, Self-Made Madness. She also has written workbooks and CD sets, including a teacher's manual on emotional literacy. And her ideas have been featured in publications such as the San Francisco Chronicle, Care Notes, Field.com, Personal Excellence, and Women's Day. She's been well sought after as a professional speaker for 25 years. She currently hosts three internet radio programs, and she has taught and lectured all over the world. She's also developed a method of parenting she calls conscious parenting, which she has taught in the U.S. and in Australia. Eileen says that this method redefines the job of being a parent. Well, you've met the public personal persona, but tonight you are going to have the opportunity to meet the private Eileen, and I'm getting ready to tell you this because this is really one unstoppable woman. So please welcome Eileen Dillon. Good evening. Good evening. I was wondering if I would even need to talk with with all of that. That's really great, Frankie. Thank you. Oh, it's it's always so wonderful to hear yourself. (laughs) Oh. You know, I want to tell the listeners that um, I asked you about what what being unstoppable meant to you, or if, if you were unstoppable in your life. And you you wrote me back this incredible letter, telling me all about your life. And I think it's really important because it, it seems to have set the tone for the future, Eileen, the professional Eileen. Um, Definitely. You, you write a lot about parenting, you know, emotions. And and so if we could just go back and maybe and revisit and let us find out a little bit about the personal, Eileen, that would be really great. You talked to me um, when you wrote about being born during World War II and that for the first three years of your life, your father was absent. What right. was that like for you? Uh, frankly, I I don't remember. Um you know, okay. a big part of what a big part of what I remember back then was my older sister, uh, whose name was Frances. Eventually, she adopted the name of Cariac, and she was. Um, I came to really 
appreciate her, especially in 2004 and five. Uh, she came to my home. She had ovarian cancer, and she spent the last seven months of her life with me. And my husband invited her, even though his first wife had died of the same illness that she oh, had. Yeah. He invited her to come to our home. And the, he, the reason, he said, she took care of you when you were little, and now it's your turn to return the favor. Yeah. And even though she was only 22 months older than me, she became my mother. She did a lot of stimulation. She had a great imagination, very smart. And she just, she was bossy as all get out. But what I came to appreciate is that bossiness helped me to escape a lot of the consequences that occur when children are neglected. Now, you said that your mom, your birth mother, she neglected you and your sister to the point that your father was awarded custody. Did he come back or is this a new father, an adopted father? No, no. This is my birth father. He returned. He got um, malaria in the jungles of New Guinea and he returned home wow. um, 1944, 45. And um, we had, or he had, uh, lots of evidence. For example, when I was six months old, my birth mother left me at a babysitter saying she'd be gone for a few hours, and she came back three days later, and in the meantime, I had whooping cough, and were it not for the uh, uh, the babysitter who took me to the doctor, I would have died. Wow. So he had lots of evidence like that, and my sister and I tended to wander the, our neighborhood uh, in various states of dress and undress, hungry, and neighbors fed us and put warm clothes on us and so forth. We were very neglected. Wow. Uh, were you, no, you were, were you on, your dad being in the military, were you on a base anywhere or you are just in a neighborhood? No. Um, we were in the neighborhood in Fort Worth, Texas. And okay. I had... I have memories. I, I remember making my own scrambled eggs over a gas flame when I was two. Wow. So, yeah, because there was wow. nobody there to make food for me, you know. Yeah. It, it was a bad situation, and I, I have to credit the neighbors and my older sister with getting me through all of that as well. So I don't, I don't actually have bad memories of that time. Uh, but I do recognize that there have been a lot of challenges in my life as I've gone forward. For example, most kids, they have parents or somebody who's there saying, this is round, this is square, this is yellow, that's pink. I didn't have that. And so there were some learning difficulties that I encountered later because I didn't know how to organize my world. Wow. And your older sister, 22, you said she was 22 months, 24 months older, something like that? 22, 22? yeah. 22 months older. And mm -hmm. I, I'm assuming she had the same problems because there was no one there to talk to her? Actually, my uh, father was home when she was born. And okay. he was home for the first year, year and a half of her life. So her experience was different. And when I talked with him in later years, he said that as far as he knew, his life was normal with my birth mother. It was uh, the influence of her parents, her stepfather and her mother, who had an alcoholic problem, both of them, that influenced her to uh, behave in ways that she was not behaving when my father was around, based on the reports that I've heard anyway. And you, you said that your dad being in the military, you moved every 18 months to three years, that you attended 17 different schools and lived in 14 different homes by the time right. that you had completed high school. That's right. phenomenal. And yeah. if that doesn't give you, um, if that doesn't make you outgoing, <laughs> it does something else. You're always a new well, kid. Well, I, I did, you know, I do embrace new situations on a certain level, but one of the prices I paid for that was that I never let myself relate deeply to other humans, to yeah. other people. Uh, because I always was prepared that I was going to have to leave. And I was just remembering the other day that um, when I was an adult and I was married, we lived in Seattle, and then my husband was in the military for a brief period of time during the Vietnam War, and we moved to San Francisco. And some people from Seattle came to visit us, 
And I sat on the floor in my kitchen and cried because nobody that I'd ever known in a place I lived before had ever come to visit me. And I was 23 years old by that point. Oh, wow. Wow. And did you have abandonment issues? Of course. Abandonment, rejection, anger, uh, fear. Where did your mom go? You name it. Where did your mom go? Um, I I don't really know. My father... uh, consulted an attorney who told him to take us out of state and uh, he could gain custody in that way. And we were not allowed to have contact with her um, and she wasn't supposed to have contact with us. So unlike the way it would happen today, it was like one day, I remember when my father came to get us because he slapped my birth mother and gave her a bloody nose. And I remember uh, hitting him on the leg, telling him to leave my mother alone. And you can imagine I was angry with him because she was the only stability besides my sister that I knew. Um, And so he took us to half a country away, which in the 40s was quite a distance. And I never saw her again in my life or or talked to her. Wow. I mean, you said that that, uh, you're, which was better, your father or your mother? You said that your father was... Um, physically, sexually, and emotionally abusive. Was that just to your mother or was it to you two girls? Oh, no, it wasn't to my mother. <laughs> well, he, I did know that he hit her that one time, but uh, no, it okay. was to to, uh, to me. Um, yeah. It, yeah, I I hesitate to say anything about what or did or didn't happen with my no, sister. No, 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 because, you don't have to talk about yeah. that. It, it, it's enough that, you know, we're going from this really bad situation to a almost even worse situation and and you know if people are listening and they want to know about being unstoppable uh this is the show because eileen you know experienced all of this at a very young age and she could be blaming the whole world um and yet you've seen what she's accomplished you heard what she has accomplished in her life and so it's pretty phenomenal and, and we want to find out how she did that so you left for you left home for college at 17 and you never went right. back right right and in college, I met a young man. I don't know, you know, I think it was the times I had all these people, men, who wanted to marry me. I wasn't thinking about getting married. But I married at age 19 because I met a very nice man in college, and he and I married. And what we later were able to understand was that his family had some problems and mine had, and we got together and we actually became partners helping each other to grow up. And that's what we did over the next eleven years. Okay. And then when we then when we grew up, we found out we didn't we were very different and we didn't really (laughs) fit very well together. So I'm no longer with him. But you know, he took on a huge job with me. I didn't believe I was lovable. I was angry. I was fearful. I. Uh, my parents punished us for reading, so uh, he fortunately, you know, really supported me in learning to read and so forth. Uh, there was we did we did my my stepmother had grown up on a farm, and she had been asked to do a lot of work in her life, and her idea was that what we were supposed to do was do the laundry and the dishes and. We've in high school we vacuumed our house from top to bottom twice each week. Once on Wednesday morning we'd get up early and vacuum before we went to school, and that was her idea of what we were supposed to be doing. So she punished us if we were reading anything other than she could prove was assigned by a teacher. Okay. Okay. So, so it was. You begin to get the picture around. here. Yeah. 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 Uh, Cinderella. Okay. So, so we. You also had had two children with your first husband, or, or yeah, was that with well, your first? Well, no, kid? I, I, I've been married three times. I'm married on for my third time now, and with each sure. of my first two husbands, I had a child. I had okay. a daughter in my first marriage, and with my second husband, I had a wonderful son. So I have two wonderful children, and with my third one, his ex-wife died when their daughter was twelve. And I adopted her when she was 13. So I've actually raised three children, one of whom I adopted. I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to think about it. And maybe you don't have to think about it. But each husband that you had, and and I know that you're very happily married now, 
Is it a neurosurgeon or brain surgeon that you're married to? Yes. Yeah, neurosurgeon, brain surgeon, same thing. Yeah, (laughs) neurosurgeon. I know that you're very happily married and have been for a while now. But if you think about the time in your life when you married your first husband and the time of your life when you married your second husband and the issues that you were having personally as Eileen and, and the men that you ended up marrying, is there a correlation there, the, the needy? Um, did it fulfill needs? Did you, did, were you attracting one another with, with your vibrations of where you were? <laughs> good, good question. Of course we were, yes. Um, but well, of course you over don't the know years, it, do you? <laughs> over the years, Frankie, what I've come to the conclusion of and what I, uh, I work with this model as a therapist and as an author and so forth is that we live in a giant school the school mm-hmm. named Earth, and mm-hmm. we get we come to the Earth, and whatever situation we get our we find ourselves in in our childhood, that uh, sets up what I call homework assignments, the emotional issues and the situations that we are supposed to be learning from in our lifetime. So, when I look back on my three marriages, I see what I was learning in okay, my so first marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, please. Go ahead. Yeah, in, in my first in my first marriage, I was just learning to grow up and and be separate from my family and have some idea of who I was and uh, get a level of normalcy and get involved in my life. My first husband was very helpful. I mean, we learned to uh, snow ski together. We learned to backpack together. We moved across the country and lived on a houseboat in Seattle together. We finished college together. Both of us got a master's degree supporting one another, and that was very fruitful. That was a wonderful gift a very for, safe for each of us. relationship for you. Well, yes and no. In most ways, it was safe. Some ways, it wasn't quite safe. And, um, and with your it, daughter being born in that relationship, did, did did it feel like now I've got somebody that that will just love me? Well, um, that was something I had to learn. Actually, and what happened in that marriage is that I waited for eight years. I knew I needed to grow up, and I wasn't quite ready to have a child. So I waited for eight years before I got pregnant. And wow. um, when my when my daughter was born, she was we had conceived her consciously and agreed to do it and so forth. And shortly after she was born, five months after she was born, my husband came home from a therapy session that he went to one day, and he said, uh, you know, I'm not ready to be a father, and I I don't, you know, I, I, can't, I can't be here anymore. And so by the time she was 10 months old, he had left us. Wow. And Same so she didn't. She didn't feel so much like somebody who could love me as somebody I needed to take care of. Right. And uh, and I also went back to graduate school. I had been accepted to graduate school. So I had a year-old child, and I was going to the University of California in Berkeley to finish my master's degree at the same time. For And what you have to remember is that never before had I lived, had I even had my own room to myself, much less lived by myself. So I was also terrified. And it was also a time when women weren't really getting master's degrees and things like that. Oh, that's, well, that was in 1970. Uh, okay. I got my, well, finished my degree in 72. So, yes, we were. Yeah, Yeah, you were. So what, what was driving you? What drove you to, to be so successful? Well, how did you I think know, most learn how to be successful? Who taught you that? <laughs> Darn if I know. Um, you know, I when I was in you graduate school. You think it's in the school, genes? <laughs> it could be, but when I was in graduate school, one of the in uh, Seattle, one of the things that they talked to us about it was in the mid '60s, and they said, "Listen." you need to become a change agent. That means you're going to help other people to make changes so their lives are better. And one day I was sitting alone in the student lounge, and I thought, who am I kidding? I don't even know how to take care of myself, much less tell other people how to change. And so I made a decision that uh, if I got my own self together and was able to help one other person in my lifetime, I would consider it done. 
-hmm. And that was a huge thing for me. And mostly it was pain and necessity that helped me get things together. You know, I, I realized at some point, for example, that I was consumed with anger. And so I began to learn about anger. Uh, when I was 30, I realized with my father being so abusive, he had seemed powerful to me. And I realized I'm a powerful person, but I don't behave like I'm powerful. And it was mm -hmm. because I didn't want to be powerful like him. So I set about to see what, how I could redefine power so that I could claim it for myself. Right, yeah. So let, let's just go back to husband number two for a moment. Cause we're going to come back and talk about anger and, and, and taking okay. responsibility and getting your power and validating yourself. So husband number two, what was the lesson with him? Now, he was bipolar. Yes, he had bipolar disorder, uh, which I did not know until after we ended our relationship. He was a very sure. unusual man. I met him in church, um, and it was I think I was um, certainly allowing myself to open up and try new things and go in different directions. However, I also, through this whole thing, there's a thread. I came from a, an abusive, violent family. Now, my father wasn't beating on my mother all the time, but he was sexually abusing me. He was beating on his children, right? Mm -hmm. And and in all fairness to him, he was in a military situation, and even today, military families have very high rates of abuse. Mm -hmm. So there has been a constant ongoing issue with abuse through both of my marriages. My first husband was more in the emotionally abusive level where he would fall madly in love with some other woman and proceed to tell me all about it but not act on it. Now, right. my second my second husband with the bipolar disorder would go into rages and tear my house apart. Okay? Uh, mm -hmm. I remember him knock, uh, tearing the not uh, kicking in the door in the bathroom at one time because he was angry. Um, uh, on the other hand, he had some really incredible, fantastic sensitivities and abilities. A lot of times people with bipolar disorder are really smart and they're very charming and, you know, there are reasons that we fall in love with them. And uh, so I learned also he never, in seven years, he never supported himself, much less the family. So what I learned there is that I'm capable of supporting a family of four, mm -hmm. which I didn't know I could do. <laughs> well, and it also, you know, I hear remnants of my life as I listen to you, and and, and I I look at this at this picture and I think, okay, lesson number one, you're growing up, you're learning to grow up, and you're learning to um, accept responsibility, and, and and you're taking this emotional abuse, and and in Number two, now, you know, you're taking that one step further. The responsibility is yours. Um, you know that you can be independent. You don't need anybody because your husband's not supporting you. You were there for him. You know, maybe maybe marriage one, he was there for you. But, you know, marriage two, you were there for him. Um, he's almost like a um, a case study for but let you. Me tell you um, let me tell you something that happened after he left. When I finally asked him to leave, which I did, Excuse me. When I finally asked him to leave, I had this slump in my business in the in the sense that I had phone calls I needed to make to return for clients. I had things I needed to do, and I couldn't get myself to do them. And I was sitting out in my yard one day at the end of a little sidewalk, and the gate to leave the property was in front of me down that sidewalk. And I noticed that my heels were dug into the sidewalk. And I thought to myself, what is going on here? What am I saying? And what came out of my mouth is, I'm going to sit right here and wait until he comes back and takes care of me. Uh, well, the the point was that he had never taken care of me. Mm -hmm. And so I looked back over my life and I thought, okay, in my very early life, I was waiting for my father to came, come home. And he came home and he started to take care of me, but then he also started to abuse me. So he couldn't do it. 
So then I hooked up with my first husband, and he did wonderful things for me also, but then when we had a child, he said, I can't do this, I'm out of here. And so I mm-hmm. lost him. So finally what I did, notice, re- remember this is a giant school I'm trying to learn. Finally, I, I picked somebody who had not a chance in heck to take care of me because of his illness. And mm-hmm. I held on to him for seven years until I finally got that no man was going to save me. Mm-hmm. That was my lesson from that from that marriage. Yeah. And it's a good lesson because, you know, I, I, I think for everybody who's listening, if, if you're in relationships, and I say it all the time, talk about being in relationships – that don't serve you. I mean, this relationship in some ways served you because you found out that you could be independent and you didn't need a man to save you. And and yet um, the beauty of that is that you get to have a relationship in the future, one that's of choice, one where um, you don't need him, you desire him, and, and so you get to come at it from a totally different uh, place, a, a healthy place. Yes. There's yeah, not desperation in it. Yes, and so what I the way I describe that is you move from need, which is what you do when you're manipulating or using other people, into want, which means I want you, but I'll be okay without you. Right. So you um, have what you call the Bounce Back series, and you have a number yes. of, of, of different um, writings in that series about emotion. And you talked about being angry, and there. God bless you, you know, we can see why you would have been angry. Um, <laughs> where was your sister at this time? Well, now my sister, be, uh, she married, um, let's see, she went to college. My parents did such wonderful things, and I didn't know this until later that they'd done it for her as well. But in the middle of my first semester of college, my parents stopped paying tuition. Mm-hmm. And so... It was up to me. And they did the same thing for my sister. And my sister was attending Randolph-Macon Women's College. And at the time, freshmen were not allowed to work. But the dean of women stood behind my sister and helped her get jobs so that she could pay her way through college. So my sister worked her way through college. And then she uh, had some jobs. And then she married um she went to the Rhode Island School of Design and she met a man there and she married him and lived in Wisconsin for a number of years so she was going through that and she was training to be a teacher and she was teaching young children arts and creative dramatics and so forth and then when her daughter was 5 and mine was 3 she had always wanted to dance And she finally decided to leave her marriage, and she moved to San Francisco. Of course, interestingly enough, I have uh, two sisters and a brother, and every time one of those siblings broke away from my family, they came and stayed with me. So she came and stayed with me (laughs) with her five-year-old daughter, and um, she established herself as a world-class dance and performance teacher, and she taught in Europe and all over the world, and wow. in San Francisco, yeah. So there's a, there's a so, lot of drive in in both of you. Yes, yes. Well, we can, you know one thing about our family was that we um, we were really a do it yourself family, and we really got but we got about work for one thing, mm-hmm. and also I had the good fortune um, when my my I was so attached to my sister that when she went to school I conducted school at home by myself. I had this little dictionary that had pictures in it, and I was about four and a half, and I taught myself to read so I could be going to school at the same time my sister Mm -hmm. was. And so they were ready to put me into first grade when she was only in second grade, and my father decided I was too young. And so my parents sent me to my stepmother's parents in South Georgia where they had a farm for a year. And that was one of the most blissful, wonderful years. I'm sure it saved my life. It gave me back my soul because I got to be an only child. I went with my grandfather to milk the cow. I had kitty cats to pet. I wandered in the woods. I went fishing with my grandparents. It was just one of the most wonderful times in my life, and I'm sure it saved me. 
Wow. So yeah. this is the same stepmother who worked you from dusk to dawn. Her parents. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Her parents. So well, well, there is a farm mentality. So I learned to sure. do a lot of things. That's where I learned I was capable. I helped, and I, I, I went and and did things on the farm, and it was joyful to do that because in those days children stayed with the adults and they helped out and they were participants in what was going on, and made, it helped me with my self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And which would have been very low. Given given where you came from, one, how, how you one would think so. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, one would think so. So let's go back to the anger just for a moment, because growing up um, and and probably silently seething with anger, maybe didn't even no know. No silent. It. I was angry. <laughs> oh, you knew that you were angry all the time. Well, were you angry I, did, all the time? I didn't. I didn't label myself that way. But no, that's why my I mean, family. Yeah. My family was angry and. Uh, we uh, we played the game uh, that's called uproar. There was always somebody yelling at somebody in our family. Um, okay. That was one of the hardest adjustments to my uh, first husband was that he wouldn't fight with me. I didn't know what to do okay. with myself if he wouldn't fight with me. <laughs> oh, that sounds familiar. Okay. So, and I, I get that totally. I get that. The um, It's an addiction. The I think the the adrenaline is an addiction. Mm-hmm. Those you know that feeling of um, the anger and 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 not knowing it, maybe not labeling it, not not recognizing it. Um, but when you did recognize it, what did you do about it? When you walked, well, I, I'm so angry about everything. What did you yeah, do? Yeah. Well, I was first. The first thing I did was just be astounded. There were things like I didn't know for a long time, even until when I was a therapist, that I had come from an abusive family. We didn't talk about such things. You know, people mm-hmm. didn't know about such things. And and I didn't recognize that I was angry and that many of the problems that I had in relating to people had to do with the fact that, that they were experiencing me as quite angry. I just thought I was being my normal self and they would go, ooh, ouch, how'd you, how, why'd you say that? Yeah. I just didn't know those things. So when I began to understand that I had a lot of anger in me, I decided I, I'm a therapist. By that point, I was a therapist, and I thought, I'm going to learn something about anger because I don't want this to be ruling my life forever. Yeah. And at the time, there were not classes on anger. In fact, uh, just a, about six or seven years ago, I had somebody in my office that I hired canvas the professional schools that prefer, that prepare psychotherapists for a marriage and family therapist license in California. Mm-hmm. We surveyed 37 schools and we asked this question, do you now or have you ever offered a standalone course on anger? Mm-hmm. Not one of the 37 schools that prepare therapists to help other people with anger had ever offered a standalone course on anger. That's incredible. Isn't that something? Absolutely so what that, incredible. What that meant to me, and this is what happened for me, I had to go, th- you know, we were encouraged to go through our individual therapy, whereas which is where you learn most about it. So I went through my individual therapy, and that's where I was learning about all my anger and upset and fear and how to deal with it. But I still didn't have an understanding, and nobody could tell me, you know, what causes anger? Uh, mm-hmm. How do I stop being angry? What can I do instead? Is there any purpose to getting angry? Uh, what what does it do to me? When Is there anything negative that anger does to me if I have it? You know, nobody mm-hmm. can answer those questions. So I slowly began to develop an understanding, and it was a combination of learning through some spiritual development courses and also my personal therapy and talking with other therapists and reading books, wherever I was just devouring it, until I came to the point of understanding that emotions are given to us as tools. They help us to navigate life, every single emotion signals us something. For example, the emotion of loneliness signals that we have more 
energy going out than coming back in. So Mm -hmm. if I can reverse that and bring the energy in, I'll stop feeling lonely. So every single emotion offers us a signal, and it's a signal for taking action. Love, for example, signals you come closer, get closer to a person. And if you take them together, our emotions are like a user's manual, like you'd like to have for your computer, you know, one that's (laughs) user-friendly. And, it's, it's, um, they can be confusing, though, can't they? I, you know, I had a client once, and and I, I said to him, um, so, you know, what are you feeling? And he said, let me get back to you. And in two hours, he got back to me, and he said, I don't have feelings. <laughs> uh-huh. That's okay. My, my my poor daughter, my oldest child, uh, her father was a therapist, I was a therapist, her stepmother had done some therapy, and by the time she got to high school, she just looked at me one day and said, I don't have feelings, okay? I just don't have yes. them, <laughs> because she don't was have them. so sick of talking about them. One of, um, but one of the things I had thought about, Eileen, and, and maybe, I don't know if you ever thought about it or addressed it, was language, the idea of language and emotion, because I think that women, because we talk about our emotions more, have more more subtleties of emotion or words that describe what we're feeling more than men? What do you think about that? Well, I don't know. One of the radio programs I'm doing now with my co-host, Dakey Fox, is called Emotionally Speaking. And what we're doing is drawing together small groups of women and meeting them in a conference center uh, like we're doing here through Blog Talk. Mm -hmm. And we address questions of emotion in your personal life or your life at work or in the world and we record what the women have to say about emotions and put that on the air that's our program and any Mm -hmm. of your listeners who would like to participate in that it's it's open to anybody and we're also setting up groups of men we're not we're not uh we broadcast over the women's information network, so we started with women, but we also are working with men. Well, the bottom line is that the principle is what you pay attention to, you tend to become. So mm-hmm. women are encouraged to pay more attention to emotions and relationship than men. And in that sense, I think they probably have more of a vocabulary or more interest. Women in general have more of a vocabulary because of the thickness of their corpus callosum in their brain. Uh, but I, I don't know. I, I, You know, in working with people as a psychotherapist, what I've done is somebody who comes to me and says, well, I, I don't feel anger, I don't get upset, I, you know, they're kind of bland. I start them on a program of like every hour or two in their day to just stop and ask themselves, what am I feeling? Well, at Mm -hmm. the beginning, the person will come up with, I'm feeling nothing or I'm feeling empty or blank. But when they keep doing that, even over a fairly short period of, say, three weeks, emotions start to come. And when they do, everybody has words for them. I do have a long list that I sometimes provide with people uh, for emotions because uh, people don't always have a big vocabulary for emotions. I think you're right about that. Yeah. I mean, I I think that sometimes they know that they're angry and they're sad. They know the big ones. But, you know, the difference between being uh, depressed and sad or, or, you know, there's the subtleties in between. I, I think sometimes women have those words. Well, I think women don't push their emotions away quite as much. But on the other hand, it's different kinds of emotions. Women traditionally have pushed anger and hate away more, uh, whereas men have not. And uh, men have tended to push some of the so-called gentler emotions away, like hurt. All all people in our Western society uh, push hurt away. It's uh, it's not becoming to a man to ever say that he feels hurt. And right. uh, women often, Sucked if up. they say they're hurt, people say, oh, isn't that just like a woman? Yeah, yeah. So so we're supposed to just toughen up, suck it up, keep going. But here's, here's what's interesting, Frankie. Under anger is hurt. Yes. So yeah. we push that. that away. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's not 
we're not comfortable with anger. We're not comfortable with other people's anger. Well, why should it we somehow be comfortable? Makes us feel, well, because as you said, I mean, anger is there. There is a, a good side to anger. There's a cleansing to it. Is there not? Well, yeah. Anger is very interesting. May, may I tell you what I understand as, as the signal yeah. of anger? Okay. Um, anger is an interesting thing. To, what I have learned is that there's a universal cause of anger. This will make anybody angry anywhere. And that cause is that all of us have pictures in our brains. They're usually established by the time we're about seven years old of how things are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And whenever and and we store them in our brains in terms of shoulds and should nots. You should stand in line. You should not butt in line. You should hug me. You should not ignore me. All those kinds of things we have those in our brain. Now universally, I will get angry if whenever my shoulds are violated. If I think you should do something and you don't, I'll get angry. If I think you should not do something and you do. I'll get angry, all right? Yep. So our our anger universally is doing an interesting thing. Now, I, I, there's another signal to angle, anger. Anger is one of the few that has two signals. The other signal is that it pushes us to take action. We say, oh, that's it. Now I'm angry. Now I'm going to, and we take action. So anger mm-hmm. actually has two two signals, all right? Mm-hmm. Now where am I where am I going with that? Um oh uh, the um the idea is that um if it if it were true that let's say I get angry about people cutting me drivers cutting me off on the freeway and mm-hmm. therefore that means I think they should not do that. All right? If yeah. it were true that they should not do it, if it were really a rule that they should not do it, they wouldn't do it. So what the anger is really showing me is where I have mistaken ideas about how the world is. And the anger is really trying to help me to update and 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 normalize my my ideas of how the world is supposed to be. But let, let's take perspective for a moment because as a coach, that's, that's my, my greatest tool for, for my clients. So perspective, somebody cuts me off and I'm angry that they've cut me off. But I find out that the the baby's head is, is right there and they're trying to get to the hospital really quickly or that they've had a gunshot wound and they're trying to get to the hospital. Now my anger dissipates because I go, okay, that's okay. I'll, that's acceptable to me. They can cut me off for that. Right, because you have another picture of how the world should be and this picture is not being violated. Right, okay, very good. <laughs> Yeah, but to me, now just recently, I've really been understanding this, that anger really is signaling us that we have an incorrect idea of how our world works. And the real message is, take a look at this. You need to update your picture. And when you update yeah. your picture, see, what I, I can do that. is I can, I can say, listen, Updating my picture means, you know, maybe 25 to 30% of all drivers on the freeway are going to cut other drivers off. So Mm -hmm. the next time somebody cuts me off, instead of saying, you should not do that, what I'm going to say is, oh, you're part of that 30%. And when I'm doing that, I won't get angry. Yeah. And the other thing that, that there is that you might want to talk about there is the idea of the pattern of being angry and how to stop it. Uh-huh. The pattern of being angry. Well, well there, there's a pattern to it, the, right? There, there's, a re, there's a reaction instead of a response. Yes, so we, and everybody does that. But the way that I have, that. the way I have learned to to change anger, you can't get rid of anger because all emotions, as I'm sure you're aware through your work, all emotions are part of us. You can't get rid of yeah. them. But what we want to do is learn to process them and use them and learn from them and then let them go. So what I've learned to do with anger is to, first of all, say, oh, I got angry. 
what's my should? What am I thinking should happen? Am I facing the fact? Am I looking squarely at the truth of what's going on here? And so I upgrade that. I'll tell you a quick story about that. I was teaching a class many years ago, uh, one hour during lunchtime for some Civic Center employees, and it was on anger. And about the third class, a woman in her 50s raised her hand and she said, I'll believe what you're saying and I'll accept it if you can help me with my problem, Eileen. And she began to tell us that on Sundays she would go to church and meet her mother at church and then she would take her mother home and the mother would stay overnight and on her way to work on Monday morning she would deliver her mother back to her home. And her problem was, as she said, by Sunday night, I am ready to kill that woman. And we asked her why, and she said because she criticizes me all day long. She says things like, I don't remember that we ever made mashed potatoes like that. Do you, dear? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she said, if you can help me with this, okay? So I said, how long has your mother been criticizing you like this? And she said, all my life. And I said, well, the first thing I would help you with is that you're not facing fact. You're thinking, your if you're getting angry, you're thinking your mother should not criticize you. And frankly, she's been doing it for 50 years or more. It's one of her best things. Of course, she should criticize you because it's what she really does well. So face the fact. Okay. Yeah. So then I told her to take a piece of paper. Uh, I asked her how many times her mother criticized her, and she said, oh, five or six times. So I said, okay, this week on Sunday, take a piece of paper and just draw a little line every time your mother criticizes you. And if she doesn't criticize you ten times, your job is to get angry with her. And I want you to come back next week and tell us what happened. Mm-hmm. So she came back the next week, and I asked her what happened, and she said, "I my mother only criticized me four times. And I couldn't get angry with her because the minute I started putting those little lines on the paper, I started laughing and saying to myself, come on, honey, get it out. You know, I'm waiting for the next the, the next criticism. And she said, my mother let, let me down, and but I couldn't get mad at her. And so we talked a bit about it and what was happening. Now, here's the kicker. She kept doing that. We didn't really talk about it. But it was an eight-week class. On the eighth week... I turned to her and I said, before we stop the class, I need to. we all need to know what has happened with the criticism. And she looked at me blankly and said, what criticism? <laughs> I said, you know, your mother, the mashed potatoes, Sundays. And again, she looked blankly and she said, oh, she doesn't do that anymore. Okay. Phenomenal. 50, 50 years. Uh-huh. And so so what had she done? First of all, she faced the fact of what the reality was and stopped getting angry with her mother for doing something that her mother was going to do. And that stopped feeding her attention for it, so she stopped uh, doing it quite so much. Yeah. Uh, you know, she slowed down on it. And what had happened, we found out what had happened is over those weeks, the mother and daughter had found more things in common and they were off doing fun things together instead of hanging around. And the mother had stopped criticizing her because she had nothing to really complain about anymore. The, so it was attention the from the mother. She needed attention. And so what what I teach people is that in this giant school of earth, if you don't learn those homework assignments I was talking about, what you do is you go over them and over them and over them and over them, and every time that homework assignment comes up, it's a harsher lesson. So this woman had been going over that for 50 years, right? Uh However, the minute you learn your lesson, you're finished. And that's what Uh happened. The woman learned her lesson to not get upset with her mother, to accept her mother for who she was. That's fantastic. What about the emotion of jealousy? That's a pretty tough one. It's well, you're talking anything. to a recovered jealous person here. <laughs> oh, are you? Oh, okay. I was. I, I was very jealous, yes. Well, Where did jealousy I, come from? Is it, is they, jealousy, you got your property? Or? Jealousy, yeah, a, it's a mental computation that somebody else has something or is getting something that you can't have. Mm -hmm. and the bottom line is 
that the person who is 99% of the time keeping you from having it is yourself. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, the signal of jealousy is creativity. Instead of standing there and being jealous of somebody, the real thing to do is to say, if that's what I want, what do I need to do to get that for myself? Instead of Mm -hmm. giving your energy away to someone else who already has something that you'd like to have, give it back to yourself through creating what it is that you want to have in your life. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. You know, one of the things I talk a lot about um, is negative self-talk, and, and that has a lot to do with our self-esteem. And I'm sure that your clients uh, had to deal a lot with negative self-talk. How do you how do you get them to identify it? Because sometimes negative you know I, I, I know that yeah negative self-talk. I mean, there's been times if you really listen to to you know what you're saying to yourself. Um, I remember once sitting up and just screaming back, going, "Just be quiet! You're so mean." You're so mean to me. My you know? uh-huh. ego, you're so mean. Yeah. But well, a lot of people uh, don't hear it. Yeah, the thing is that you need to start becoming aware of what you are doing. Usually the negative self-talk is um, things that were said to us when we were children or that we learn to say to ourselves to keep us under control so we wouldn't get punished or criticized when we were children. And and we are, most people are really, really mean to themselves. And I, I think, um, I had an interesting experience when I was in my early 30s. I felt, I used to cry myself to sleep that I didn't have any friends. And I had never gone to anybody but I anybody of this type but I went to an astrologer one time I was so much in pain I wanted to find out what was I doing to keep myself from having friends mm-hmm. and uh, so I I didn't want to give this man any information so I asked him questions like tell me about me and work tell me about me and family and finally I got to tell me about me and friends And he looked at my astrological chart, which is what he was using, and he said to me, you might as well forget it. This lifetime, you didn't come here to have friends. Really? Yeah. And he told me that I tend to look at the big picture of things, and in friendship circles, that scares people. So it was very hard for people to be my friend. Well, you know, I left that reading and I was driving my car and I started getting angry about it. How come everybody else in the world can have friends and I'm not supposed to have any this lifetime? And I was so upset, I pulled over to the side of the road and just cried. And as I was recovering from all that, I thought to myself, you know, I can't argue with the man because I don't have any friends. So Mm -hmm. if that's the truth, if, if he's telling me the truth, then there is one person I can have for a friend. And she, I better start having her be a really good friend to me. And that's me. Mm -hmm. And so I started loving myself, treating myself like a good friend, largely because I was pretty well convinced that nobody else was going to be my friend, so I better have at least one friend in the world. And that's the way I ended up self-talk. What? Wow. I couldn't believe he said that to you. I find that very well, it was bizarre. very much. It was very much like what I said to the woman in terms of helping me to face fact. The fact yeah. was that, that that was my experience. So it, whether it was true or not, it was what I believed. Mm-hmm. Do you follow? And so yeah, absolutely. getting yeah. getting that very straight head-on statement. Really, sort I mean, of it was really good that it got you the- that the lesson was to learn to love yourself and be your best friend. On the other side of that coin, though, is that the only thing that stops us from having what we want are our thoughts. Yes, our thoughts, ourselves. We are, we are our own worst enemy most of the time. Yeah. And I would love it if if everybody would understand that everything emanates from us. What the way I treat myself, 
the way I think inside of me, the way I, whether I judge myself or not, all of that is reflected back to me from the world. So if I want my experience in the world to change, the person I need to work with is me. As soon as I stopped being judgmental of myself, my world was a much kinder place. I had fewer people judging me. Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? The um, I work a lot with people in midlife, and and I'm wondering if you work, you know, through through the marriage um, sessions that you do, counseling um, people in midlife, you know, having their quote unquote midlife crisis. Now, I think that the crisis is is the metamorphosis. Um, where we change from our socialized self to our real self, to the, the person that we came here to be. I wonder how you feel about that. Well, <clears throat> I went through the midlife crisis in my uh, late 20s. <laughs> and my therapist called the process the identity crisis process. Mm-hmm. And I I totally agree with your assessment of what it is. It... Uh, what I've learned is that this crisis actually can occur at any time following some kind of change that's shocking. You could lose your job. Mm-hmm. Your, uh, you, I, I was a wonderful wife and I lost my marriage. You know, that's what shocked me into it. And what it does is it shakes up the way you see yourself and you mm-hmm. fall apart. It's like you're going crazy. And the reason you're falling apart is because you've learned to be a false self. You're not Mm -hmm. the person you were when you were born. And so first you have to fall apart, and then if you allow yourself to stick with it, there'll be a little bit of an empty period, and then you will start building up. I do have a... um, a paper that I wrote on that on my website on the store at emotionalpro.com. It's called Identity Crisis, and then all run together. What goes on when things go wrong? Because that's what it feels like. Everything's jammed together. And it's a description of that process, and I have taken hundreds of people through that process once I went through it myself. Um, we got two minutes remaining, Eileen. And you're listening to Eileen Dillon. And again, she's a she has a master of social work. She's a psychotherapist, author, radio host. Um, can you please give us your website again, and where folks can re- catch all your books? Right. It's emotional www.emotionalpro.com. And by the way, I, I learned years ago that experts don't write books. People who have things to learn write books. So you'll mm-hmm. find all the books about the things that I've needed to learn, like being a victim and having your energy drained and being angry and so forth. Yeah, victim. being a victim is, is, an, is an interesting one. And it's, it's something that a lot of people don't understand you know, being the martyrs like being the victim. But we've only got a minute, so maybe I, I shouldn't go into it. Is, give us give us some of your last words then, your last words of wisdom, your pearls of wisdom, Eileen. Well, you know what, I, I, I'm i so grateful, Frankie, that I've had the life that I've had and I've had the opportunity to learn these things. My family has changed in the generations that followed me to a really positive level. And that's what I'm excited about sharing with other people, that it doesn't matter where you came from, what you experienced. You can be unstoppable just by connecting with yourself and learning how to work with yourself and loving yourself as you've been talking. And these things are learnable, and you don't have to sit in any level of purgatory. And so in working with you or working with me or anybody that you're already connected with, you know, Know that. Know that if you're unhappy or miserable in any way, that is changeable. You don't have to have it no matter where you came from. The words of wisdom from Eileen Dillon. Thank you so much, Eileen, for being our guest this evening, and thank you, everybody, who joined us in the chat room, who are going to be listening, uh, who are listening at home and who will be listening in the future. Everyone take care, and we'll be back next week for another Mission Unstoppable. Thank you so much. Thank you, Frankie. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.
set. We are set. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Looking for quality auto parts for your vehicle? Shop one of the 152 Houston area O'Reilly Auto Parts stores. You'll find we have convenient locations, thousands of brand name parts in stock, extended store hours, everyday low prices, and well-trained professional parts people. O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices, every day. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.